beautiful Lord God, our Savior. Your name is wonderful. Counselor, Prince of Peace, and Mighty God. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You are fairer than 10,000. The beautiful one. Great and merciful God, our Savior. We have presented ourselves to you today to be filled with your spirit. To breathe in your words. Give us clarity of thought. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Holy Spirit would say to us today. As we confess together that it's not by might and it's not by power, but it is by your Spirit. Breathe on us even as you did your disciples of old. And let the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. What shall we say then? And how should we respond to God's decision to choose Jacob above Esau, even though neither had done anything right or anything wrong? What shall we say to this? First, in verse 14 of chapter 9 of the book of Romans, Paul says we should conclude from this that God is just. That God is just in all of his decisions, regardless of whom he chooses or who he does not, God is just. And there is no injustice in him at all. He says, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. And God is just in doing so. The second thing Paul wants us to surmise from verse 16 of chapter 9 is that salvation does not depend on us, but solely upon the mercy of God. We read last week that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is not a matter of my will. It is not a matter of my work. But we are saved because of God's choice, God's decision to show us mercy. That's the second thing we should conclude. That salvation belongs to the Lord. And thirdly, from verses 19 through 23, we should conclude, says Paul, that God has the right to deal with humanity in whatever way he sees fit. And no one, not the saint and not the sin sinner, no one has grounds to accuse God of being unfair. We have no right to question God's motives. We have no right to question God's actions. This is his world, this is his creation, and we are his objects. 
And this humbling truth caused a lot of consternation among the Jews. Because for centuries they had embraced the misnomer that they and their human forebears were the chosen people of God. That God took special care for them and for them alone. That God was biased toward their one special race, their one special group. Paul used to believe the same thing. But what Paul the Apostle has come to understand from a closer reading of the text and by the examples he's been laying out for us so far is that God does not save groups. Let me say that again. God does not save groups. God saves individuals. God does not save Cornerstone Community Church. God saves Robert and Maggie and Eric and Jennifer. God does not save groups, God saves individuals. But we short-sighted humans like to put everyone into groups, don't we? We like to create teams. We like to confer virtue or vice on entire people groups. And we do this one because we do not have the capacity to evaluate each individual person's character. We're not God. So for example, when we see a black man in America, some of us, will automatically see him as being oppressed, marginalized, and unduly harmed. When we see him, some of us think in those terms. Yet if we were able to take the time to get to know him, we may find that he has had a blessed and a charmed life and that he has never experienced any oppression or marginalization. But we put him in a group of people and we confer upon him the same struggles, the same challenges, the same accomplishments as the entire group. And so we see him and we treat him with kid gloves and we cater to his every complaint because we do not see him as an individual but as a group. And while we may think that we're showing him due regard, we're actually dehumanizing him. We're actually stripping him of his individual dignity, the dignity of being seen and known for who he is all by himself. God grants us this dignity. God sees and God knows each person individually. From the number of hairs on each of our heads to the number of days we will sojourn in this world, God sees and God knows each of us individually. 
And God chooses from among the sons and daughters of men to save individual persons from every race, every tribe, and every tongue, from every social, political, ethnic, or racial group, to create for himself and for his son a new people, a people born again of his spirit. This is nothing new. This has always been the way that God has interacted with humanity. God did not save Abraham's mother and Abraham's father. God saved Abraham. God summoned an individual person from among all of his family, told him to leave his father's house and go out and inherit a blessing. God did not favor all of Jacob's children. But instead, God selected Judah from among all of his brothers to inherit the promise. And then of all of the women in Israel, God chose one person, Mary, to bring forth a son, not born of the will of man, but by the Spirit of God, Jesus Christ the righteous. God saves individuals, not groups. And so what Paul concludes from this, Paul concludes that God never intended to save all of the Jewish race. In verse 25, he quotes the prophecy God spoke to Hosea when he said, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And I will call her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where, I, where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. God still recognizes people groups and races of people, but God does not distribute his mercy for salvation on any particular group. Instead, God meticulously and God patiently seeks out those whom he has marked beforehand and he saves them. He chooses them not based on their past experiences or their social position. God has mercy on whom he wills individually. Therefore, because of this, in verse 27, Isaiah says, though the number of the sons of Israel may be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. Since God does not take the shortcut and simply save in mass, both Isaiah and Paul the apostle conclude that only a small remnant of humanity will be saved. Jesus said it first. Jesus said many are called, but only a few are chosen. Only a remnant of humanity will be saved. Only a few will inherit eternal life. But someone will ask the question, why is that? Why doesn't God just save the whole human race? And the answer is simple, though not very tasteful. 
God does not save the whole human race because God has not willed to save the entire human race. God has not chosen to show the mercy that brings salvation to the entire human family, but God has established certain criteria, certain attributes he's looking for as his eyes run to and fro throughout the face of the whole earth. And Isaiah continues in verse 28 and says this, the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. Hmm. As God meticulously combs the world, as God meticulously searches every heart in the world, God is looking for something specific. Some quality that he himself has embedded within the certain hearts of men. And when God finds that quality in a person, he shows that person grace. It's a thorough work. It's not a random thing like the lottery, but God knows exactly what he's looking for and God knows exactly where to find it. His work of showing mercy to mankind is a thorough work, but ironically, Isaiah says it's also a quick work. And normally when you think of something being thorough, you think slow painstaking, arduous. But I say, Isaiah says that God's work of election is meticulous yet efficient. God's decisions as to whom he will show mercy is a quick decision, an efficient election process. He can do it quickly because God already knows what he's looking for and he already knows where to find it. I have this bad habit at home of misplacing my keys. It never takes me all day to find my keys. I find them rather quickly every time with my wife's assistance. But it is an efficient process of finding my keys because there are certain places I already know not to look. I don't look on top of the refrigerator I don't check the medicine cabinet, wouldn't put my keys in there. I don't look under my bed. There are only a few places in my house where I would lay down my keys and I find them in one of those places every time. So does God. God efficiently finds what he is looking for in the heart of every person because God knows just where to find it. And he does not find it in the majority of people in the world. And he did not find it in the majority of the hearts of the Jews either. Isaiah says in verse 29, if the Lord of armies had not left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and would have been like Gomorrah. If the Lord would not have left Israel a remnant of people that possessed this certain quality, Isaiah says, all Israel would have been wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah, whom God destroyed with fire and with brimstone. All Israel would have been annihilated. But Israel has been spared. Why? Because within the house of Israel, there remains a small number of people 
that God intends to save. Within the nation of Israel, there remains a small group of people preordained for eternal life, and God spares all of Israel because they have not yet been justified. And God is sparing this world, brothers and sisters. God is sparing this world. Only because his work of redemption is not yet complete. And there remains a few souls that have either not yet heard the word of God or have not yet responded to the call of salvation. God is doing a thorough work, a work of patience. He waits so that he might be gracious to those whom he himself has preordained. And of all the people God the Father has given to his son Jesus Christ, none of them shall be lost. And until each one of them makes it safely home, this world will keep on spinning. This world will keep on turning until God has harvested all of those marked for eternal life. This eternal life is not based on race. It's not based on nation or tribe or tongue. And therefore, as Paul has been teaching us in the book of Romans, the playing field has been leveled and no particular human people group can lay claim to any special status. The, Jew, the Jews and the Gentiles have the same standing, the same opportunity, and the same privilege before God. We all have sinned. We all fall short of God's righteous standard. And this is good news for the Jews, for, for the Gentiles. But not for all of us. Only for a few of us. And this sounds like better because only a small remnant of humanity will be saved. Verse 30, what shall we say then? <laughs> what should we conclude from all that Paul has shared with us so far? Paul says the first thing he wants us to observe with wonder is that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. That doesn't sound right. That the Gentiles who did not even pursue righteousness attained righteousness. That people, even people who were not looking for God may find God. That humans, even humans who have no care and no concern about morality or goodness or justice they may be deemed moral and good and righteous by God. That individuals who do not appear to possess any aptitude for spiritual things may be invited to participate in the Trinity. Hmm. Paul says we should learn from this that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. A righteousness that they did not earn. 
They attain righteousness because they have faith in Jesus Christ. They they attain righteousness, Paul says, by faith. You are not righteous because of what you do. But God has called you righteous because you believe in his promises, you believe in his son. And right there we have to take a pause. We have to pause just for a moment. And what we want to do right here is we want to pay close attention to what Paul the Apostle is saying. Because it is at this point where the argument is often made that what we do has no bearing on whether we'll be saved or not. What we do doesn't matter. The Gentiles were not pursuing righteousness, yet they were called righteous because of their faith. Therefore, righteous living is not a criteria for salvation. I can do as I please as long as I have faith in Jesus Christ. I will be saved regardless. Then you point to this text, isn't that what Paul just said? Those who were not pursuing righteousness were called righteous. Isn't that what Paul just said? That I can live as I please and still appreciate the abundance of the blessings of God and I can still inherit eternal life. Isn't that what Paul just said? Actually, no, that's not what Paul just said. What Paul just said is that the Gentiles were not pursuing righteousness. That's what he said. The Gentiles were not pursuing righteousness. They weren't trying to live righteous lives. They were minding their business, doing their own life their own way without God. They may have been keenly aware of what is right versus what is wrong, and in many instances, they may have been doing what was right. We don't know. He didn't say they were unrighteous. He said they weren't pursuing righteousness. Paul didn't say they weren't doing right. He only said they were not pursuing righteousness. What Paul is explaining is that the Gentiles saw no eternal benefit in expending time or energy trying to live right. It didn't matter one way or the other. Righteousness was not their goal. And if they were doing what was right, they were doing so only to have a peaceful coexistence with other humans and not for the sake of some future eternal advantage that wasn't even on their minds. They were not pursuing righteousness. They were not trying to live right in order to please or to appease God. Contrast their theology. Contrast their lack of an ethical religious worldview with that of the Jews right here, Paul says in verse 31. However, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. The one wasn't even looking for God and God found him. The one is searching hard after righteousness, he can't find it no matter where he looks. That just sounds unfair. The one is trying so hard to do it all right, the other could care less one way or another, and God chooses this one over, it's the Jacob and Esau thing. Israel was pursuing a law of righteousness and did not arrive 
at that law. Israel was trying to do what was right. Israel was trying to fulfill the law as it was handed down from Moses, but they did not attain the righteousness they pursued. They wanted the blessing. They worked hard for the blessing. They ran after the blessing, but they couldn't find it. And one may deduce the wrong lesson from this humiliating example. From this heartbreaking example, one may conclude that trying to live right is both impossible and unnecessary. Look at Israel. One may wrongly conclude that pursuing righteousness is a fool's errand. Look at Israel. Didn't get them anywhere. But once again, that is not what Paul is trying to communicate. Paul goes on to say that the Jews were pursuing a law of righteousness, but did not arrive at that law. Why? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith. Hmm. There was absolutely nothing wrong with their pursuing righteousness. In fact, every child of God should be pursuing righteousness. Put a finer point on that. Every true child of God is pursuing righteousness. Jesus Christ said that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. The problem Israel had and the problem that plagues many hardline believers today is not due to the fact that they pursue righteousness, but that they pursue righteousness as a means to salvation. That's the problem. Not that they pursue righteousness. That's a good thing but they pursue righteousness as a means to salvation. Paul says Israel did not pursue righteousness by faith, but as though they could attain it by their works. And in this, obviously, they were mistaken. Or as Paul says it at the end of verse 32, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They got tripped up. They got confused. They became offended at the very idea that their righteous and moral pursuits from an eternal perspective were a waste of time. They got sidelined, they stubbed their toes, they twisted their ankles. And you know what? God is the one who tripped them. Paul says in verse 33, just as it is written, behold, I, God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. I'm going to make you trip. This stone of stumbling was set there by God himself. The stone of stumbling symbolizes the oxymoron, the frustratingly disorienting and sometimes mystifying life of the believer. This stone of stumbling sits there in the middle of my journey and of yours, constantly reminding us that without the leading of the Holy Spirit, none of us can possibly get this walk right. Without the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we will always lean either too far to the left or too far to the right. What I mean by that is that they're this. We will become so faith-focused that our moral lives will fall by the wayside or 
we will become so works-oriented that we will leave off depending on the mercies of God and seek reassurance of our salvation in what we do instead of in Christ alone. And either of these two positions, whether faith or works, either of these two positions taken to the extreme, reorients the source of our salvation away from God and causes us to look to ourselves and our own works or our beliefs as the means to eternal life, this stone of stumbling. This rock is Jesus Christ. He causes us to stumble. To stumble in our theology, to stumble in our confidence in what we have come to understand. This rock, this stone is an offensive stone. That's how the prophet refers, to, I'm not saying that myself, that's how the prophet refers to Jesus. He says he is a rock of offense. He's offensive. He offends you. <laughs> we know it's true, Jesus can be quite offensive. Sometimes Jesus rubs even his children the wrong way. Because Jesus stands there as certain proof that we, even we who call on his name, are utterly undone. That we do ourselves no good service by trusting in our faith. That we only do ourselves harm by putting our confidence in our works. Jesus puts us to shame time and time again as we lean heavily into faith only to be corrected by the Holy Spirit and directed to do more good works. Then we go out into the world we start doing all of these good works for a season. And the Holy Spirit taps us again and says, you know what, your prayer life has gone to pot. It's unacceptable. You need to spend more, more quiet time, more time in prayer, less time in the field. And we say, but, but you just told me to just have faith and sit down. Now I'm telling you to go to work. Which one is it, faith or the works? Yeah, yes. Which one, is it faith, God, or is it works? Yes. This is frustrating. Do I need to concern myself with living a moral life, or do I need to concern myself with just trusting and believing and give Jesus the keys? Yeah. Yes. He is a stone of stumbling, always throwing you off of your game. <laughs> he frustrates us. It's frustrating because the means of salvation seem so undefined. People have been arguing about this for eons. The ground rules of our salvation seem so inconsistent and always evolving. And with Doubting Thomas in John chapter 14, we cry out to Jesus Christ and we say, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we possibly know the way? I'm confused. Which one is it, faith, Jesus, or works? Which one? Show me the way. Huh. Why are you not making this crystal clear for us? We lean toward works and you tell us it's never going to be good enough. We abandon good works and we just work on believing to the neglect of good deeds and you tell us we do not believe sincerely enough. 
We confess that we do not know the way. We ask for your help. Show us the way. We are confounded. We are put to shame before God. And we are viewed as being hypocrites by the world. Jesus, just show us the way and we will follow it. And Jesus Christ responds to Doubting Thomas just as he responds to you and I and he simply says, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Huh. And so Paul the Apostle in chapter 9 by encouraging us that the one who believes in Jesus Christ will not be put to shame. Oh, well thank you, that's the answer. It is by faith that we're saved. No. Well then it's by works that we're saved. No. We have been called and we have been justified and we are being saved by Jesus Christ. So that instead of faith, instead of works being an either or proposition, it is a both and proposal. Okay, now I'm confused. What does that look like? If you want to know what it looks like to live a life of faith and a life of works in perfect balance, look at the life of Jesus Christ. A man superior in faith and filled with good deeds. Hmm. And this is what it means to live in the spirit, brothers and sisters. To know when and to know how to strike the proper balance between faith and works. To know when to be still and know that he is God and to know when to put your hands to the plow and do the work. To know when to pray until something happens and when to get up off of your knees and be about your father's business. This is what it means to live in the spirit. And no matter which one of these you are doing at any given time, to be certain, to be assured that you will be saved by neither. You are saved by Jesus Christ. Now you believe in him and you work for him because his life has become your own. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. It is not to practice anything in particular, but to trust Jesus Christ so much that you have completely taken leave of your own life and you have yielded your entire self to him, to his will. This is true faith. The willingness to die to myself so that Jesus Christ can live his life through me. And once you have done this, you will find that the dichotomy between faith and works is no dichotomy at all because Jesus Christ will be all and in all. And you will no longer pursue faith or works, but only to do the will of God from a heart of love. 
because of this conundrum, <laughs> overlaid with a mystery, overlaid with darkness, because of this conundrum, it is no wonder that only a few will be saved. <laughs> this is what Paul is trying to explain to us. Many times we read the book of Romans and we say that Paul is faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. No, not really. Paul the apostle is Jesus alone. That's what he really is. Jesus Christ alone. The disputes and the disputations about faith versus works are of no real consequence. We are saved by the cross through the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we come to him and we truly repent and we give up our lives, we put our lives on pause. Like Paul the Apostle said, our life is hidden with Christ in God. When we put our life on hold and allow Jesus Christ to live his life in us and through us, we don't have to wonder about faith and works because Jesus Christ always does what pleases the Father. Let's pray. Father God, it was Paul the Apostle who said, great is the mystery of godliness. And indeed it is a mystery, a conundrum, an oxymoron. Father, I pray today that we will not be those who try to put forth effort. Either by works or by faith. But that all of our effort and all of our focus would be upon Jesus Christ, your only begotten son. We won't continue to run and to wander to and fro trying to figure out what best pleases you, but that we will come to understand that the only person who pleases you is your son, Jesus Christ. That we would give up our lives and receive his life in ourselves to glorify him and to do your will. And only in this will we be pleasing to you in all things. We pray for the day of our transformation. We pray for the day that we will be wholly conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We pray, Lord God, that every day you'll teach us more and more how to yield to your Holy Spirit to experience more of the life of Jesus Christ himself in us. Not for salvation, but because we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.